I have to go upstairs and record something again, so... Quiet. Do not... Smash anything. And do not disturb. Do not disturb. Do not come into your room. You're listening to Pandemic, a podcast from RTE News and Current Affairs on the COVID-19 crisis. I'm Colm O'Mungine and each week I'll be talking to RTE's correspondents, reporters and others to bring you news, updates and analysis you can trust. We can guarantee you a high quality of information. Sound quality, on the other hand, might vary somewhat. The correspondents and I will be recording this in many cases on mobile devices from home, so please do bear with us. It's Thursday, January 28th, episode 73 of Pandemic. As we saw deaths exceed 3,100 this week, we also learned Ireland's lockdown will continue until March, at least. And a long-standing near consensus in politics here is showing the cracks as opposition parties call for zero COVID regimes of varying sorts, if that's not a contradiction in terms. Cases are now up to over 190,000 too, which means it's highly likely we could see a situation where cases could have trebled between late November and February, with most of the surge taking place over this past month alone. On the global level, cases are up 4 million since our last episode last week to 101 million and deaths have risen in that time by over 150,000 and now stand at 2.18 million. The figures, as always, on the global level from the Johns Hopkins University tracker. Now, vaccines is the issue this week, listener. You'll have heard about the ongoing row between the European Commission and AstraZeneca which has somewhat dampened down hopes of as plentiful a vaccine supply as was expected late last year when all the optimistic noises were being made. But we're not going to look at where the vaccine isn't going to be rolled out, but rather at where it is being rolled out, and rapidly at that. Now, you might think, listener, that by stark contrast to the angry noises in Europe, all would be peaceful, harmonious and celebratory in Israel, where already over 80% of over 60s have been vaccinated. But, as you'll hear from this week's contributor, things are rarely so simple. We're going to go now to the military and defence analyst with the Israeli daily Haaretz who has been devoting his analytical faculties to Israel's handling of COVID-19 over the past year. And contain your envy because as you'll hear, Amos Harel has already been vaccinated. Okay, Amos, welcome to the podcast again. Thank you, Colin. Mazel tov, if that's the word on your immunization. Yeah, I think so. I got the second dose of the vaccine this Monday. It's a Pfizer vaccine. Like um, quite a large percentage of the Israeli uh, population, I'm now uh, vaccinated against COVID-19. And as people can hear from your voice, Amos, and as if they wanted to, they could read online, you are, if it's not impertinent to ask, a relatively young man, shall we say, around uh, the early 50s? I'm um, early 50s is, is is the exact number, yes, and it it only goes to show that Israel has a, a sufficient number of uh, vaccine doses uh, by now. Um, the, the latest statistics, um, if I'm not mistaken, is that about 2.8 million out of 9.3 million Israelis uh, have already received their first uh, dose of the vaccine, and about 1.5 million uh, received the uh, two doses already within uh, 21 days of each other. And what's most important, I think, is that people over 60 
uh, 82% of the people over 60 who are obviously more in danger of um, getting uh, severely ill uh, from the virus are now at least uh, partly uh, protected because they received at least one dose of the vaccine. Can we have a look maybe at, at how Israel did it, first of all? First of all, can we look at securing the supply and second of all, how they managed to roll it out so widely, so quickly? I think it's a combination of a few uh, aspects here. Uh, of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, takes a lot of, his, of the credit uh, to himself. It's not. Uh, it's probably quite typical of many leaders right now. He tries to ignore uh, the different failures, and Israel had quite a few failures. We've discussed this in your podcast, I think, a few months ago. He, he tries to avoid his mistakes and uh, emphasize his achievements, and he, and he has been uh, lucky or uh, successful at uh, providing vaccines. I think there are about already about 5 million doses of uh, Pfizer vaccines and a small amount of Moderna vaccines uh, were already sent to Israel by late January. Uh, it's assumed that somewhere between 10 to 12 million will be provided by March. And this means that most of the adult population, there are slightly over 6 million Israelis over the age of uh, 16. So uh, it's assumed that most of the Israeli population uh, could be vaccinated by uh, mid-March, which is right. which was quite a feat when you compare that to other countries. You see that Israel is currently the vaccine nation. It's leading the world uh, with the number of vaccines compared to compared to the um, um, the population. Um, so Netanyahu deserves some of the credit. He identified. Um, I think pretty quickly that Israel was doing uh, terribly bad uh, in, on everything that had to do with uh, long-term planning or discipline or the um, uh, the public uh, obeying uh, government orders and so on. And he understood that if you can get people vaccine uh, vaccinated quickly, it could be, solve much of the problem. On top of this, he was um, in close touch with the directors of both Moderna and Pfizer. He actually bragged that he talked, I think, 17 times within a few days with the director general of uh, Pfizer in order to persuade them to send the vaccinations, uh, the, the vaccines to Israel as early as possible. Uh, and they were persuaded to do that. I think their reason was that they understood that Israel could be a model state for them. That if they could prove that a small country who is um, um, terrifically efficient at uh, delivering uh, vaccination to its population. We'll probably touch on that in a minute. Uh, if it can prove that such a country can do a very good job at, uh, um, at um, defending, protecting its population, then other countries uh, would be persuaded as well to, to, to hurry up and sign um, uh, contracts with them. And this is exactly what happened. And this has to do with actually with Israel's history and specifically with the fact that uh, in, in earlier times, Israel began more or less as a socialist uh, state. It was never communist, of course, but there's a, um, um, a very deep, um, I'd say, social democratic uh, background to the state of Israel since the 40s and 50s. And part of the issue here is that we have health maintenance organizations. Every Israeli um, is... Uh, a client of one of those uh, four uh, agencies. And unlike many European countries, for instance, we're in touch not with our uh, uh, local hospital, but with uh, local doctors uh, who belong to these agencies. 
And so this is a tradition that has been very helpful uh, to Israel all along, but is specifically successful right now when it comes to delivering uh, the vaccines and actually vaccinating people. On top of that, traditionally, Israel has been quite adept at uh, moving forward with collecting uh, medical data on its residents. And what happens is that every um, such agency, every health maintenance organization actually has on um, computers, on file, um, almost any kind of information about everybody. Unlike, I, I think what I hear is that the, in, in other countries, this is quite different. But now when an Israeli, if I'm an Israeli patient, and I go to my doctor, wherever he is, or either a, a, a family doctor or somebody who's a, a specific professional, all the data is already there on the computers. This is quite different than other countries, and it helps Israel um, collect all the, data, the relevant data and have it um, prepared already. And of course, this is very, very helpful for the uh, companies making the vaccines, because then uh, they can uh, have more information about how successful the operation actually is. There right. is, of course, a debate whether this is the country uh, um, going too far with our uh, private data. Is it uh, providing too much information to is the, the country, the state? Well, two of your colleagues had a, had a pretty detailed look at that in recent days in Haaretz, didn't they? Yes. Um, the, the end result, the conclusion was that it wasn't too bad comparing everything else that happens with Google or Facebook or or Amazon or whatever, it doesn't seem as if the, the the government has sold our information down the river. That's not the case, as far as I can tell. Uh, then again, people are slightly worried about that. But we have to think of the larger picture right now. The larger picture is that we have uh, about 1,200 severe cases of COVID-19, uh, people in hospitals uh, on in, uh, in a severe uh, condition. We have around 40 to 45 deaths a day. And since these are the numbers, and this has been going on for quite a while, and people are saying, okay, our, our way out is by sticking to the vaccine operation. And this is working quite well. It's a little bit too soon to tell, but there are already uh, details delivered by the government in recent days saying, look, this is actually working. And when we look at the numbers of people who've already received uh, the second dose of the vaccine and are actually uh, a week or more ahead um, after uh, receiving the second dose, it turns out that the, the large majority of them are protected. No, not only have only a, a few, uh, probably a dozen people uh, who are part of that group um, are in any kind of a um, severe condition because of uh, COVID illness, it also turns out that just a few dozens were infected. And when you compare that to the number of cases in the general uh, population, this means quite a lot. These are the first results outside of the clinical trials uh, actually uh, giving a, us that kind of detail, saying, yes, this the, the um, vaccine protects you both from severe Ill illness and to some extent it also protects you from being infected. So this is terribly important, I think, for, to the, the world at large, not only for Israel and, or and the, the companies making the vaccines. And any, any discernible effect on transmission? Uh, we, we see a beginning of a change in transmission. Uh, the R currently is about 0.9 after being around 1.2, 1.3 for quite some time. 
but the question is why is this happening uh, so part of the explanation apparently is that uh, indeed um, the, the fact that the older population is mostly vaccinated is that most of them are protected and are not being uh, infected in any way uh, another explanation may be the fact that we're in a long lockdown uh, there has been a lockdown was announced I think about five weeks ago, and then a stricter one about three weeks ago. So this may contribute as well to the fact that the uh, uh, number of cases is, is finally going slightly down. On the other hand, um, on the downside, I think we're blaming you guys a bit, uh, because apparently it's not the Irish, but the British uh, variant is now spreading all over Israel. And when uh, the experts are being uh, faced with the question, why is isn't the number of uh, cases dropping as fast as you suggested, as you promised uh, the country just a few weeks ago, they're all saying, well, it's a British variant. It's the fact that it's spreading so wide in the population uh, makes it harder for, for the direction of the uh, COVID, so to speak, to, to change. We're still facing a lot of cases. This may be one explanation. I suspect that the other explanation has to do mostly with our uh, ultra-orthodox community. I think we discussed that uh, the last time we spoke in your Yeah, uh, not, not in a lot of detail, but I suppose they've been visibly non-compliant with the rules and in large numbers and also living in communities where they live in, in quite close proximity. We, I mean, I've, I'm looking at your own newspaper, the clashes with the police certainly have been an issue of concern for quite some time. Uh, you're absolutely right. The only problem I have is with the word V. I mean, it's not all of the uh, ultra-Orthodox population. It's it's divided into uh, smaller groups, and some of these groups are uh, unwilling to cooperate with the government. Um, they've already faced um, many cases during the beginning of the pandemic in March and in April and later on during the summer. Um, but it has to do, as you said, with crowded um, um, apartments and the fact that these are large families and so on, but also it became an ideological issue. What is Some the ideological rabbis, issue? Um, it's it's not only about obeying the state, it's mostly about keeping their biblical schools, the yeshivas, uh, open. Because these rabbis are very concerned for the um, religious future of their uh, flock, so to speak. They're... Um, um, they forbid their communities, for instance, from using uh, the Internet. So you can't study by Zoom at home if you go to biblical school. And they're afraid that if they lose control of their uh, young uh, students, then many of those would lose uh, trust in, in religion and, and, um, and um, you know, uh, get, get away from it and, and become secular Jews. And this is critic, critical for that community. And I think what the rabbis are doing is insisting on opening their schools in spite of the fact that every other school in Israel is closed and in spite of the fear that those schools are actually hotbeds for more infections and more people and more families getting ill. Now, there's a political background to this as well, because as you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu is fake, say, facing a trial. He's uh, um, there's a trial against him already on three different counts, um, mostly accepting uh, uh, bribes, and he's trying to avoid his legal problems by by all by any means necessary. And the ultra orthodox parties are his um, most reliable partners, so he's unwilling or afraid of actually dealing with this directly and forcing those communities from 
uh, um, forcing them to to obey the government's orders. And this is becoming a huge issue in Israel because it's quite clear by now that uh, this is the way, um, this is a large part of the reason why the virus uh, keeps spreading. And it also makes many, many Israelis very, very angry at the government for not playing it uh, fair, if you'd like. For, Secular for Israelis, avoid- or maybe moderately religious Israelis, who've spent the last five weeks in a pretty severe lockdown. Yes, and this is, this is of course, uh, you know, it, it, makes you, it makes you mad. I can tell you, you know, my, my, my own story. I have uh, three kids, um, um, two of them still in uh, high school and in junior high. Uh, the two boys are, are at home for a year. Every now and then they had a few weeks at, at school. But mostly it's about studying from from home by Zoom, not seeing your friends, not being able to go to football practice or anything like that, having no social life or hardly any social life. Maybe studying a bit of boxing at lunchtime with each other and sometimes um, when the atmosphere gets hot. Yeah, so 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 this is this is a situation that many Israelis are many Israeli families are facing, uh, the same as it is happening in all over the West or almost all over the world, and and, and while most of the uh, state is facing this, uh, a, a, a large part, about ten percent of, of of the population is saying, well, the rules don't apply for us, and it's quite clear that the the same part of the population is also facing a, a, a very high number of cases so it's you know it, it, it's it, it gets people mad and i think it may even affect the results of the elections which were uh, are supposed to happen in march uh, 23rd well that's what i just want to ask you about for the final part of our interview because you mentioned that by mid-march there could be five million people vaccinated which seems to dovetail neatly with the is it march 23rd election date so how much has the election loomed large over the crisis response to COVID, both in terms of the cost of the vaccines, which you might touch on, and also the deadline for mass immunisation? I think it's extremely um, an issue. It casts a shadow. The election casts a, a shadow over uh, the attempts to uh, to control the, the pandemic. Uh, Netanyahu... I think his original plan was to bring the vaccines in, vaccinate, as I said, about 80% of the uh, adult population in Israel, people over 16, and then present. He actually said that in public speeches, that his plan was to present the Israelis by February or early March with a victory, saying we got over the virus. We didn't um, choose the path of uh, zero COVID like uh, Taiwan or New Zealand or Australia, but we had things done our way. We were extremely good at uh, uh, vaccinating the population, and now we can get back to our lives. Um, apparently, this is not going to happen so quickly because um, right now the, the the new variant is spreading um, so fast that it makes it harder to to enjoy the success of the vaccination uh, program. I think. It's believed by most experts that by next week, we will begin to see more evident results, that the number of severe cases would finally drop, and that gradually less and less people would die from the virus, and less people would be hospitalized because most of the older population would be uh, entirely, almost entirely uh, protected. So this is what he was building on, and um, he was also willing, and I think it was the right decision, Netanyahu was also willing to pay more I can't remember the actual numbers, but he was willing to pay a lot more than other countries for uh, uh, the vaccines in order to get them here 
earlier than other countries. And it, in my view, it makes perfect sense, not only from a political perspective, but from a, you know, from a, a perspective of efficiency. Sure. Um, every day of lockdown costs the economy much more than actually buying overpriced vaccinations. So and was there I, any I issue of supply with, with Pfizer-BioNTech? Because I suppose even Netanyahu's critics would say even a stop clock tells the right time twice a day. But in, in making this decision to pay more, did that smooth over any supply issues that had been seen in Europe, for example, with Pfizer? I, I suspect so. I'm not entirely sure. You have to remember that Israel is a small market. And another reason I failed to mention earlier for Pfizer to actually choose Israel, if you'd like, for this project, for, for, for uh, this trial, is that Israel is such a small country. The, the, the logistics is not a big issue. It's, you know, it's a three hour drive from Tel Aviv to the north and a three and a half hour drive from Tel Aviv, which is the center of the country, to the southernmost town. So it's no big, big deal. The logistics are not hard and it's easy to, to, to reach most of the population in a very uh, short uh, time. So Pfizer, I mean, Netanyahu and Pfizer <laughs> were meant to be together. This is a win-win for both sides. Uh, his problem is that it's not going on as as quickly as he has expected. And he actually, he gave a speech about three or four weeks ago where he said that uh, by, again, by March, things will uh, gradually return to normal while uh, Europe and other countries will be, still be fighting uh, the pandemic. And he also gave a sort of a, it wasn't that blunt, but uh, he hinted that by Passover, which is late March, uh, your uh, Easter uh, vacation, that we could spend uh, Passover night, the Seder night, with our families, which is something that we were forbidden from doing last year. And it was quite a big deal because Jewish families at Seder night, at Passover, it's usually, it's not your uh, just your nuclear family, but it's also your uh, cousins and, 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 and sisters and parents and so on. And that's that could be 20 to 50 people at a Seder night table. And he gave this vague promise that he hoped that by uh, Passover, which is, I think, around March 30th, uh, we could do that. We could celebrate. By now, this seems a little bit too ambitious. It will be harder for him to do. And he will, you know, his uh, political opponents will probably attack him for this. What you see right now uh, during the political campaign is two camps. Netanyahu keeps on um, emphasizing his huge uh, achievement by bringing in the vaccines. You can see um, Likud ministers on social media uh, all the time praising him for this and groveling and fluttering and, and so on regarding this, while his political opponents keep attacking him for his failures at dealing with the other aspects of the pandemic, not only the economic aspects, but also the sheer numbers. If I'm not mistaken, there have been already more than 4,600 uh, deaths in Israel. And this is quite quite a lot. I and mean, what, in daily Europe, case rates are what? About the 6,000 mark, is it? The number of case rates is around, there are about 600,000 cases. So the, 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 the actual percentage is not too bad. It's 0.8%, which is not too high. But still, the, the, the death toll is quite huge for a country which is so young. We mentioned that about a third of the population, or almost a third is under 16. So apparently, if this was working better, and remember, we're, we're not Ireland, but we're almost an island state. Uh, if we handled this better, and if he had uh, inspired the population to work harder on this, and he, if he had made better decisions, and if he didn't surrender his will, 
to his political allies like the ultra-Orthodox, then probably less people would have died. And if you look at the numbers, the Israeli um, average, the, the Israeli number right now, I think, is about 500 deaths per million people. That's a lot too high for a, such a young country. Um, and when you compare that to countries around us, whether it's Cyprus or Greece or Lebanon or so on, we're not doing that well. The only thing that he has to show is his huge success regarding the vaccines. And this is what we're going to hear all the day, all the way through until election day. All right. Well, that just and it is, I promise you, my final question, seeing as you mentioned it there, the proportion of the population that's under 16, is that a complicating factor when rolling out vaccination as regards achieving herd immunity? It's yes, it's it's the other side of the coin, if you'd like. Um, I've mentioned that as, a, as an advantage when it comes to um, the, the number of deaths expected and so on. It becomes a problem because both Pfizer and Moderna have limited the age for uh, uh, receiving the vaccine to 16. I think Moderna is 18, in fact. So this becomes an issue because even if you if you're extremely successful and persuade 90 percent of the adults uh, to get vaccinated, then you get around 63, 64% of the entire population. Then you add up, let's say 10% or eight or 9% of children who already became ill um, and, and, and got better. But this, um, you, you, had to, you have to add this up to, in order to, to, to start calculating um, herd immunity. So that's around 70, 72% on the most optimistic scenario. But in recent days, experts, including Dr. Fauci, have said that maybe because of the new variants, the actual level of herd immunity needs to go all the way uh, up to 80%. So this is becoming harder for Israel. What the Israeli um, Ministry of Health is already saying is, look, we're expecting new results from Pfizer, and we hope that somewhere within a few months, we will be able, they will permit us to vaccinate um, 14 to 16-year-olds and or even 12 to 14, and that will solve our problem. I have to mention that actually when uh, the Ministry of Health decided on, um, um, you know, the, the guidelines for actually uh, receiving vaccinations, uh, it, only recently, about a week ago, they decided to um, give the go-ahead to 16 to 18-year-olds. And the, the reason is that they need to, to go forward with their studies and they need to um, uh, reach their final uh, exams and so on. Uh, but now what you see is 16 to 18 year olds who are also receiving vaccines even earlier than people who are slightly older than they are. OK, Amos, that was fascinating. There was, there's plenty more we could discuss, but time is limited. So thanks very much for joining us on the Pandemic Podcast and enjoy your immunity. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Colm. All the best. Cheers. Thank you. Bye bye. And that's it for this episode. If you want to give any feedback on the new shorter format or of any other comments, get in touch at column.omongain at rte.ie. That's C-O-L-M dot O-M-O-N-G-A-I-N at rte.ie or on Twitter at column Omongain. Until next week, stay safe, take care and as always, thanks for listening.